This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio and the audiobook version of Madalena and the Dark by Julia Fine. Madalena and the Dark is a novel set in 18th century Venice at a prestigious music school about two girls drawn together by a dangerous wager. You have 15-year-old Louisa, a young girl who has only ever wanted one thing, to be the best at violin. She has peers, but she does not have friends until Madalena. But Madalena has a secret. She's hatched a dangerous plot to rescue her future her own way. When she invites Louisa into her plans, promising to make her dreams come true, Louisa doesn't hesitate. The girls are drawn into the decadent world outside their music school and must decide what they truly want and what they're willing to pay for it. This book has all the things we love, female friendship, women with boundless desires and secrets, music and magic, all in a beautiful Italian setting. Get Madalena and the Dark, narrated by Sophie Roberts, wherever you get audiobooks today. On this episode of Complicated Conversation, we welcome Kirsten Chen, the New York Times bestselling author of three novels. Her latest, Counterfeit, which is out now in paperback, is a Reese Witherspoon book club pick, a Roxanne Gay book club pick, and a New York Times editor's choice. Her previous two novels are Bury What We Cannot Take and Soy Sauce for Beginners. She holds an MFA from Emerson College and a BA from Stanford University. Born and raised in Singapore, she lives in New York City but many years in San Francisco. So welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Kirsten. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Why don't you give our listeners the elevator pitch for Counterfeit in case they missed, you know, Reese Witherspoon doing it? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Happy to do that. Counterfeit is the story of two Asian American women who band together to grow a counterfeit handbag enterprise into a global scheme, shattering the model minority myth along the way. And for a while, these two women are enormously successful, but as often happens in criminal schemes, things start to go awry. And when that happens, one of the partners disappears, leaving our protagonist, Ava Wong, to pick up the pieces and face the consequences. Oh, mm. as as often happens in criminal. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the exactly. Things go awry. Yes. I do want to get to Ava, but you mentioned the model minority myth. So I want to make sure everybody knows what that is and, and why that was sort of a, an inspiration for what you wanted to write here. Sure, absolutely. So the model minority myth, just a quick primer, is this idea that a certain group of people, mostly East Asians in in this country, we talk about East Asians as a group that are held up as an example because they're submissive, rule-abiding, hardworking. And when you describe this myth to people, people sometimes say, well, what's so bad about that? Those are all really positive things. But I think the model minority myth is really insidious in that way because it's often used to pit people of color against each other. And so if you say, like, look at this group of people, they're so hardworking, they managed to succeed. The implication is that another group of people didn't succeed because of some innate qualities that they have. So that's the first problem. The other problem is that it collapses differences between East Asians. And so there's this idea that all East Asians are uniformly straight A students and high achieving, which obviously isn't true. And so that's something that I've been thinking a lot about since I moved to the U.S. when I was 15 And it was something that was really fun to explore through the lens of counterfeit handbags, which is kind of a really unlikely juxtaposition. But that was one of the great appeals of writing this book. Mm, Yes. 
So let's let's go to Ava, a character that I very much relate to, not just because she is a straight-A student turned lawyer <laughs> who seems on paper to have it all, but because she finds, after having achieved it all, that she still isn't happy. And she's at this point where she's like, I did everything I was supposed to do, but is this even what I wanted? And so tell us about your development of Ava and and where we find her sort of at the start of this. Yeah, I mean, you gave a really succinct and clear description of her. You know, that is who she is for most of her life. And when we meet her in the beginning of this book, there's been a turning point. I mean, it isn't necessarily clear from the start, but where she's at a crisis point where she has just realized that all the things that she was promised would come to her if she followed all the rules, if she checked all the boxes, all of those things haven't quite come to fruition in the way that she hoped. And she is one of these characters, I think a few times in a writer's career, and Corinne, you can weigh in on this, characters come to you almost completely fully formed. It's only happened to me once or twice. Usually it's, I have to kind of dig for the characters over many, many drafts and they kind of reveal themselves over years. But with Ava, partly because I too relate to her in certain aspects, she was so clear to me and her voice was so clear to me that Pretty much the first half of the book, which is Ava's confession, the voice was there from the start. Mm-hmm. Wow. Kirsten, I've had characters more or less come to me, but not like this. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about different aspects of character and research and what you had to do for this book. But this character is so, first of all, I relate very much as a <laughs> ambitious You're lawyer. You're also a lawyer. Yes. 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 <laughs> and and who struggled with motherhood in very similar ways. It was almost like, but there were so many other ways also in her family of origin. I just want to read a little bit if that's okay. Uh, she says, look, I'm 37 years old and I'm sure we can all agree way past being able to credibly blame my parents for who I am today. But that I think is the point. I'd never really grown up. I was still that nerdy teenager who dared not dream her own dreams, who craved approval from whoever would offer it. I, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be 27 when I came to that realization as opposed to 37. But I mean, I can relate. And it's still, even though I have that realization, it's still a struggle that just when it's ingrained in you. And she talks about her brother, her grandmother's influence, yeah. and all of those things, I think, were also things I could relate to, aside from the lawyer-turned-very-anxious <laughs> mother who had built you know, her whole life around being safe and secure, which is what I had done, rather than investigating more of what might make her feel joy or satisfaction, like specifically, not just generally. So I'd like mm-hmm. to read a little bit more, if that's okay, and you can talk about any part of this. This is a moment when Ava comes back to the U.S. with a with a, a, a bag, a designer bag. <laughs> and you'll forgive me because I know nothing about purses, so you'll have to teach me. <laughs> but, but your description is just perfect. So this is why people spent money on gigantic diamond rings, flashy sports cars. This was the allure of ostentatiousness. To think I'd spent my entire adult life, perhaps my whole life, trying to disappear in dark, understated clothing, sensible, low-block heels. In a way, wasn't this desire to disappear at the root of why I'd gone to law school despite having no interest in the law? I was like, oh my God, is she asking me? (laughs) Because it was easier and less risky to vanish into the image that my parents and the world had of the good Chinese-American daughter. 
I bent over the stroller to make sure Henry's eyelids remained at half-mast. A long-ago image surfaced of freshman year Winnie in a pink t-shirt with the words cutie pie plastered across the front <laughs> in multicolored rhinestones. At the time, my friends and I mocked her behind her back, but now I wondered how she would have reacted if I'd done it to her face. Her retort rose in my ears. What would you suggest I wear? One of three identical black sweaters every day? Don't you ever get bored? What do you want to wear? Do you have any idea, Ava, what it is you actually want? Mm. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah. I, seen, condemned, <laughs> all, all um, understood. Yes, all of it at, at the same time. So I'm... There's not really a question there except for whatever you want to jump on in those pieces. But this idea of, you know, blending in, being the good child, being the good, in Ava's case, you know, child of Chinese American immigrants, mm -hmm. like this is something very relatable, I think, as a universal appeal to women unfortunately yeah. Uh, uh, absolutely yeah so. yeah i mean i thought it was so striking how both of you were like yes we are the <laughs> we are that person and i think it's yeah. so easy to fall into that trap as a woman because there is so much external feedback and critique everywhere you turn there's so many people telling you this is the right way to do things and this isn't and so if you're somebody who thrives you know if you're a motivated person <laughs> who thrives on external external feedback there is just too much feedback in the world for women, you know? And so it makes sense to me that so many people kind of, you can live your life that way, just seeking that kind of approval. I too came to that realization maybe in my early twenties when I was at a corporate job that I yeah. hated. And yeah. I was kind of like, what is like the only thing keeping me at this job is external approval because I don't care about what I'm doing. All I care about is that somebody's saying to me, good job. Yeah. And that was so striking yeah. to me because that was kind of how I got through school was just by depending on people saying, this is an a, this is a B, right? Like, yeah. and so, yeah, I mean, I think that women are just so used to looking at ourselves from the outside. I mean, obviously there are books, multiple tomes have been written on the male gaze, but, or, yeah. but also, you know, the, the female gaze and other women's gaze and your friends gazes, like we're just so used to seeing ourselves from so many kind of layers of vision. And so, yeah, I think it's the, it's pretty much, and I mean, not to mention social media, yeah. It is kind of the reality yeah. of being used to being looked at and thinking yes. about how you appear. Can I ask you though? So I have had the same kind of realization. I took a little longer because I went to law school. So I was still getting my A's and still like <laughs> getting my good job and yay on, on all of that as continued achievement. But then when I realized I didn't need that or want that, or I didn't want it, it wasn't doing for me what I wanted it to. I kind of rejected it wholesale by going into writing and, you know, doing things that that brought me that joy. But I still I've kind of found the balance that I still need that external. So like I'll share with my husband who's like, this is amazing. Or I know how to get it in a way that doesn't diminish or or overshadow why I'm doing what I do. Have you done that kind of replacement external validation or have you been able to just let it go? No, I mean, that was a huge lesson. I mean, so my transition to writing was a little bit more, I don't know, moderated because I oh, went to graduate school. Yeah. Oh, right. So, you know, I did quit my corporate job, but then I went and got an MFA. And that was one of the biggest things I had to learn because as 
all of you can imagine, an MFA program is full of external feedback. You're in the most of the classes are workshops and you get critiques from every single person in your class. And it is so easy to write to your professor. It's so easy right. to write the story your professor wants to read. And it takes a lot of not just training, but also artistic conviction, mm, you know, yes. to say, I hear you. I think you're right for I understand what you're saying, but I don't think that's what's right for that project, for this particular project. And so, no, when I was in graduate school, I was very much writing to my professor. My first novel, when I look back at it, I could see how being in a workshop influenced that book for better or for worse. And a lot of it was for, for better, sure, you know, sure, the, better, the, yeah. it was probably the best book that I could write at the time. But I also think about how if I wasn't in that setting, the book would probably have been quite a bit different. And so, you know... It's something I still think about to this day. You know, I could be writing to my agent. I could be writing to my editor. One of the things I've gotten really good at is learning what kind of feedback to trust. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know what my first readers excel at. I know I, I know what each of my first readers is giving me um, and I know what their strengths are. And so I can take that in as well. And I do have more artistic conviction, yeah. but it took right. a long time. You know, I'm three books in. I've started writing seriously in 2006 and it's taken you know all of this time and I could still probably improve yeah right. so but I I also want to just make sure people hear that too like if you are the kind of person and I'm not talking to Kate if you are the kind of person who needs that external validation that you can still get it in a healthy way mm -hmm. right. in a way that works mm -hmm. for you and doesn't overshadow those yeah. other yeah i would just add there's nothing wrong with that external yeah, validation that, you know like i mean you. writing yeah. a novel takes a long time as you, you both know and mm -hmm. i always i say this to my students i say this, you know celebrate every stage like you finish a draft celebrate right. that like you got, you know you got accepted to a conference or a, you know things that seem like small wins yeah. like because that's what you would be doing in a job you would celebrate every you know every great presentation every, you know like there are avenues in a kind of traditional workplace to have those small celebrations and i think it's important to create that in your writing life because you're by yourself you know you have to find a way to keep yourself motivated for the whatever period yeah. of time it takes yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We're not good at celebrating the small wins. No, though, <laughs> yeah. But we're getting we're, better. We're yes, yes, we are. We are. We are. Yeah. Yes, we are. So we're talking about the way Ava is, and so she seems like an unlikely candidate for a counterfeit scheme here. Yes. So the book makes you think a lot about why would Ava do this? Why would she join Winnie in this scheme that's clearly something so out of character for her? But again, you know, I found this so relatable. Not that I have a secret life as a non-artist, but, <laughs> but when yet. you're like Ava, yeah, yet, but when you're like Ava, as we are, you, you do have a strong need to be in control and you've lived your life that way. You know, she controls her appearance, her achievement, her emotions. I do think it's possible when you're like that to then hit a tipping point, you know, that there's something that then sort of pushes you over the edge. And for Ava, it seems to me to be her son who kind of changes things for her because guess what? You can't control kids, which again, for Ava, I'm raising my hand over here. That was a real wake up call for me when I had my first child. I just, I just didn't understand why he was not conformed to my schedule. How, how dare he get me off track? I have a list of things to do. What do you mean? You know, so it is very 
very hard. So how, how did you, or why did you want motherhood maybe to, for Ava specifically with her son to kind of be the force that pushes her to loosen the grip a little on the control? Exactly for the reasons you just described. I was thinking mm-hmm. about her and I, and I could not come up with another thing that would push her right. as hard as having That's a right. son. And also having mm-hmm. a son that, you know, I think the hardest thing for someone like Ava would have a son that she perceives of as developmentally challenged, as mm-hmm. not advanced right. as she hopes or even expects. Um, and mm-hmm. that's so difficult for her. And I think, like you said, one of the kind of big writerly problems I was trying to solve was what would make somebody like her make this horrible decision? And mm-hmm. all of the background that I gave her came from that, from trying to solve that problem. So you also notice that her mother passes away just several months before the book before her story with Winnie begins. And that was another thing that I thought would be a very destabilizing force because her mother might have been able to give her the perspective she needed to raise Henry in a way that she doesn't have anymore. Her husband is never there. He works all the time. And so she's very isolated in her home in San Francisco. And so I think those two factors were the kind of tipping point or created that tipping point for Ava. Yeah, you really yeah. put the screws to her, <laughs> you know, right? Like it, you you didn't let off. So I want to ask about research and we can talk about what a lot of people want to hear about, which is the handbags and how you got interested in that and what research you did, because I know it was extensive. But I also want to talk about, I mean, you didn't Google like ambitious mother with a two-year-old feels <laughs> like she's going to lose her mind every moment of the day. Like, mm-hmm. what kind of research did you do for her character and develop? Because this is one of those compliments that's impossible to receive because, but everyone wants to, is her character drives this entire plot. Mm-hmm. And it's a plotty book. There, a lot happens. And it's not like, you know, just, we're not just navel gazing. Her character drives this whole plot, as we've already talked about, how she gets into this and then how she deals with every step that comes mm-hmm. is really driven by who Ava is fundamentally and her questioning that and her trying to develop maybe more parts of herself. So did you do research into aspects of her character? And then, of course, please talk about the handbags. I think in terms of who Ava is as a person, I have known so many people in her vein and also sometimes been in that vein that I, I felt like I was very clear on the kinds of decisions she would make. So that part I didn't have to research. I myself am not a parent. So the motherhood piece of it was extremely difficult to get right. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad to hear both of you talk about it, to be able to kind of relate to her as a mother, because that was one of the things that did not come easily. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember I gave a second or third draft to one of my first readers, the wonderful writer, Vanessa Hua, who is a parent of twin boys. (gasps) Twins. Twins, yes. And she read the manuscript and she had all of this feedback. And then her comment on the motherhood piece was, Kirsten, 
even the most annoying children have moments of sweetness. And I thought <laughs> that was the most helpful note yeah. because at that, what that told yeah. me was that I had conceived of Henry as a tool. Mm-hmm. Like he was there to get Ava oh. out of her rut. And yeah. so therefore he had to be really, really annoying and have a lot of tantrums and just drive her to her breaking point. I was conceiving of him not as a character, yes. but as a tool, right? Mm-hmm. And so over subsequent drafts, all my first readers are parents, thank goodness. <laughs> and they all had great notes. But over subsequent drafts, I developed Henry into a, a real person with, with his own motivations and his own, you know, his. He, I think of him as a rather delightful child, even though he is also very difficult. But that took a, that took a lot of research yeah. and a lot of just kind of I mean, research is not even the right word. I think a lot of thoughtfulness and mm-hmm. a lot of imagining. I have a nephew, for instance, and so like spending time with, he's wonderful. My nephew is like the cheerfulest one, most yes. sweetest boy, but you know, and I'm a daughter. And so I could lean on being a child and having a mother, for instance, and seeing seeing my mother from a different lens. And so, you know, there were diff- different ways to kind of inhabit that particular aspect of, of Ava, but it did take a lot of work and a okay. lot of drafts. That is very reassuring to hear because I'll tell you, I'm a parent. It's not a shortcut. I couldn't write this. I mean, you really did a great job, not only with Henry as a character. And now I see the dimension that you brought to him, maybe from earlier drafts, but also the dynamic and how that reflects on on Ava and how, the push and pull, the, the antagonism that is motherhood. But it, of course, it's full of other moments too. So I'm te- like, that's not something just because you're a parent, you yeah. could ever get right. So, you know, and I also do wonder if because I'm not a parent, I have a little that's bit more fear. objectivity. Like I, so many people came up to me um, after reading the preschool admission scene. And oh, it's yeah. kind of, <laughs> and so many people were like, it's so traumatic. I can still remember the trauma. And I think that actually makes it very difficult to write about something if it feels so raw because Mm -hmm. we do need some distance as writers, right? You need to be able Mm -hmm. to kind of see the humor and to see the absurdity of certain things. And so, you know, uh, two of my, well, all my books have motherhood in them because it's impossible to escape, but two of my books feature deeply mothers going through crisis moments. And I, I do wonder if in some ways not being a parent has made those stories a little bit more accessible or even more appealing to a writer like me. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But will you talk about the, the research that you did? Because I did hear this at the NorCal yeah. retreat. So yeah. mm. tell us about... You got a grant and you actually... Oh, yes. Yes. So I did, when I was working on the very first draft of this book, I happened to be in residency at a university in Singapore. And that residency came with a research grant. And the timing was just kind of one of those things where the stars align. Hong Kong and Guangzhou are relatively close to Singapore. And so with that money, I was able to book a flight and go to those two places. And I visited the fake handbag malls which was fascinating, fascinating. I mean, it was just, you know, the handbags themselves were fascinating, but the kind of whole infrastructure surrounding that industry was really interesting and fascinating to see up front. I, through a family contact, I managed to visit a legitimate handbag factory in Southern China. And so I I really had no idea how handbags were manufactured. And so just even going to see how handbags get made was amazing. And then the third thing I did, which was really invaluable, was I 
talked to an IP lawyer in Hong Kong yeah. who specializes in copyright infringement in China. So it's her oh, job to protect yeah. those brand names in China yes. from counterfeiters. And her perspective mm -hmm. was just so interesting and actually surprising and nuanced. You, you know, I expected her to come in just being like, you know, we need to stamp out the counterfeiters. Like, but she had a very, very realistic take, especially because she's based in Hong Kong and is so close to China. And, you know, I think it would be much, much different to speak to somebody in the Western world who's kind of oceans away. Yes. And so those three things were kind of the key research components that I can't imagine writing this book without having done that level of research. It would have been so, so difficult. And yet you didn't just dump it into the book. You know, exactly. you knew to pull yeah. it back and just give us a little bit of flavor. Why, like, is this purses are a particular thing you Love you like them, you right? Collect. I think I oh, think yes. you do. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. I think I've I heard am you a, say. Yeah. I am a an armchair handbag expert. So, yeah. <laughs> so you it's have one some of my personal experience. Yeah. I have oh, I have deep personal I in some ways I've been researching this book my entire life. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, people say you know, the interests of yeah. your entire life go into your first book. In some ways, the interests of my entire life went into this book. So just kind of separately, I've always been a lover of fashion. I worked in retail management right out of college. I thought I was going to build a career as somebody working in fashion. And so I've always been interested in that. And that helped a lot with the yeah. book, obviously. Yeah. Not only because a lot of that knowledge went into the writing of the book, but also because, as you both know, so much of writing a novel is filled with doubt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to write a novel is to constantly be second guessing yourself and thinking like, mm -hmm. is that exactly what I want to say? Does that, does that capture the thought completely? Does that, you know, does, is, is everything the way that I see it in my head? That's kind of the constant refrain as a writer. <laughs> yeah. And so for me to be able to be very confident in my handbag knowledge and yeah, to kind yeah. of tap into that as an expert, it was a little bit of a relief. You know, anytime yeah. I was writing about handbags, it was kind of like, okay, yeah. In this particular area, I know more than the reader, 99% of readers. You know, yes. I'm, I'm confident mm -hmm. that what I'm saying here is right. And, you know, I think I, and, you know, it doesn't have to be handbags. With my previous book, it was a little bit in the food writing, you know, because I'm really into food and I, and I love, I love trying new restaurants and, you know, that kind of thing. And so anything that you can kind of tap into as an expert really goes a long way in building the stamina you need to complete a book. And so that's a little bit how I thought about the handbag writing. Oh, I love wow. that. I love and now that. I really need, we need to hang out. Handbags. Food, <laughs> Are you a handbag fan? <laughs> I'm not like you at all. I can appreciate a really beautiful handbag, probably more on the restaurant food front, but mm. I think, I still mm -hmm. think we'd, we'd get yes. along. <laughs> yes. So we haven't gotten to Winnie yet. We have yes, to talk yes. about Winnie. So if, if Ava is our rule follower, Winnie is a bit of the rebel. She's bold and brash. Um, she's an immigrant who comes and strives and works hard to make her fortune, but you know, she doesn't play by all the rules. She's kind of an outlaw, which is viewed one way if you're an Asian American woman or an Asian woman, sorry, and another way if you're like a white man, right? So mm -hmm. you you really played with that, I thought, really well. So so tell us about Winnie and what you were exploring through her character. Yeah, I mean, so you captured a lot of it. Winnie is in many ways Ava's opposite, at least on the surface. Ava is kind of buttoned up, rule abiding. Winnie's bold, she's brash, she's decisive. I was thinking a lot about how Asian Americans appear very homogenous on the outside mm -hmm. or on the kind of first glance and how 
when you look at a character like Ava and a character like Winnie, like, of course, they're different. You know, Ava grew up in a predominantly white upper middle class suburb of Boston in Massachusetts. And so her whole life, she's had to assimilate and had to think about how can she be more like everyone else versus Winnie, who came from China, where everybody looks like her and is the you know, an economic powerhouse and is rising in influence. Like she has only known a China whose influence has has risen, right? Because of her particular age. She's only seen China on up on the upward yeah. slope. And so someone like her has a confidence and a sense of security that Ava can only imagine. And so that was really interesting for me to explore the ways not only that the larger society stereotypes Asian Americans, but also how Asian Americans stereotype each other. Mm, and so yeah. Ava's looking at Winnie and being like, oh, she's, you know, she's not, following. she's, who does she think she is? You know, she's just like breaking all the rules. And Winnie looks at Ava and thinks like, oh, she's so naive. Yes, she has no yeah. idea how the world works. She's living in a fairy tale. And so that dynamic was really fun to play with. And then also the kind of little edge it gave to their friendship. Like they're almost frenemies Mm -hmm. in a lot of the book. And that's, I mean, that's a fascinating, it's, it's a, it's a relationship that's just ripe for writers to explore. Yeah. Yes. And, and a different, a different kind of frenemies though. They're not really at each other. They're just different enough that like, yeah, there's there's some grappling going on mm-hmm. for both yeah. of them, right? Mm-hmm. I love the moment when Ava's in China and she notices like the railings, the height of the railings and the she's trying on pants and the height of the pants. Like everything <laughs> is more suited to her and she thinks like, is this what it was like for Winnie? Like to not have to feel like you have to assimilate on another level, right? Mm-hmm. Besides the way everyone else is just trying to assimilate every human being assimilates to their own environment. So Mm -hmm. I love those moments. I want to talk about you really play with real and fake and good and bad. And you're really kind of forcing the reader, challenging the reader to think about what those things mean, what, why, like, it's not a bright line of like, good and bad and, and like this is not okay or this is and and for that you really give us Winnie and Ava on opposite sides of things and mm-hmm. I want to read a little bit again when Winnie first reveals that sh- what she's doing to Ava yeah. and Ava has a very strong reaction she says how did I react I was furious much more so than I would have guessed I sputtered something like but that's cheating Winnie was unperturbed What about selling a bag for 10 times what it costs to make? Is that not cheating? Not at all. No one's holding a gun to your head, forcing you to buy it. What about manufacturing an entire bag in China, except for the handle, and then embossing the handle with the prominent made in Italy? What do you mean? That's neither here nor there. What about forcing workers to go hours without bathroom breaks, squeezing them for every cent, and then turning around and selling their handiwork for thousands? What are you trying to say? Many people do terrible things and that still doesn't make what you're doing okay she said i'm merely suggesting that all of us fixate on certain kinds of cheating while willfully ignoring other kinds mm-hmm. i mean i if i if my mind i i have all sorts of notes I'm like, <laughs> my mind was just blown tell me about why you wanted to explore that what you were what was on your mind when you were kind of digging into these topics and and positioning these two against each other in that way. 
Yeah. I mean, I was thinking a lot about this idea of the noble criminal, which I think Kate alluded to earlier, Mm -hmm. about how we have in Western culture this idea of a Robin Hood or a Jean Valjean Mm -hmm. from Les Miserables, where, you know, somebody who's robbing from the rich to feed the poor or someone who's stealing only because they have to feed their family. Like these are kinds of noble outlaws. And I was thinking a lot about who is allowed in our society to be seen as a noble outlaw. You know, we have Central American migrants at our border who are trying to feed their children, but not everybody thinks of that as a noble act, you know? And so that was very much on my mind. You know, these women who are perceived as something very specific in our society, what happens when they refuse to conform to those roles. I think it makes some people quite angry. You know, there's this kind of trope of like these immigrants who are here and they're ungrateful Mm -hmm. because they're breaking the rules and they're not, you know, they're not doing things the right way. And so that was kind of where that came from, because in another culture, they could be Robin Hood. You know, they're sticking it to the designer brands (laughs) that are that are kind of, you know, hoodwinking customers by selling bags at 80 percent margins or, you know, 90 percent margins. And so I think a lot of that is perception. So that was that was very much on my mind when I wrote that particular scene that you read. And then I also think about how different cultures perceive cheating in general. I mean, like so much has come out of, for instance, what goes on in finance. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know, a lot of that is seen as being smart. Or, you know, I lived in San Francisco for a long time. And in Silicon Valley, there is a known ethos of fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. And so many CEOs are so proud of, of the way that they kind of skirted the law or played in gray areas until they had enough market share. And we think of that, we applaud them, right. you know, like we say, like, these are, are the most brilliant minds of our, of our time. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, and, and, you know, in kind of flip side of that is when I was in Guangzhou looking at, you know, face to face with the counterfeit industry, so many hardworking middle class and lower middle class people work in that industry. It is a huge part of the economy. And if you go to these malls, there are salespeople and people that clean the shopping malls and people that are making the bags, the craftsmen making the bags. All, I mean, these are hardworking people trying to make a living. And I don't know that the people in that community see themselves as cheating. I imagine they don't. I th- imagine they're trying to make a living and yeah. you know this is the biggest industry that's available to them. Yeah. Um, and so there's that as well, sort of different different society, you know, to your point, Corinne, it's very much not a black and white line. And I think that it gets even more complicated when you bring in cultural national differences. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even how you brought in, I mean, when we think about counterfeit handbags, there is a part of you that's like, oh, well, what's the big deal, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. why should I pay so much for a bag? The fake is, is I'll just go with that. But then you, you bring in the the counterfeit airplane part um, Mm -hmm. aspect and like, then you're like, ooh, Maybe it's not so good when there can be disastrous consequences of of counterfeit, you know, industries. So you even even played with that, which I thought was really, really effective. Yeah, I think it's a complicated problem. I mean, counterfeit medicines, counterfeit. There was a huge counterfeit baby formula scandal a couple of years ago. And yes, I mean, I think when you remove regulations the powerless are much more likely to be exploited. And so we see that as well in terms of working conditions and child labor and things like that. I mean, I think all of that is part of the industry and it's, it's easy to justify when you're just looking at the handbag, but yeah. 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 So another complicated, but so effective aspect of this novel is the structure. I thought was so 
well done. You have sort of this first half, as you mentioned, which is confessional, where Ava's giving her confession. And that's sort of, there's no quotation marks. It's just sort of her her confession. And then, you know, we switch to the more traditional narrative. And it's just really effective. I mean, first for the story, but also what what happens to us as the reader. You know, we feel a little complicit and we make certain assumptions about Ava and Winnie, depending on which part of the book we're in. So tell us about your decision to structure it this way. And really, when did you know that this was the way you wanted to tell it? Yeah, yeah. That was one of the most challenging aspects of the book was nailing that transit, well, figuring out that I needed that transition. So the switch in point of views from Ava's confession to Winnie's more traditional narrative, you know, with the very first draft, I tried to tell the entire thing in Ava's confessional. And I have read books that are like this, that are just one monologue from start to finish. And I really loved the simplicity of that structure. I thought it was so elegant. There's a kind of absurdist quality to it. And so that was kind of what I envisioned at the beginning. And then I immediately realized that it wasn't going to work. Because right. when you're trapped in Ava's perspective, there is no way to tease out the nuances of what she's saying. I could not show when she was lying. I couldn't show when she was just exaggerating a little bit. I couldn't show when she was telling the truth. And a lot of that is still ambiguous. But at least say, you, yeah. it say, is still yeah. ambiguous but you do know at a certain point that she is unreliable. Yes. Yes. So that yes. part, at least you do know. Right. And so after probably the first, yeah, after the first draft where I tried to write that confession, I knew immediately, okay, we have to bring in a second point of view and it's probably going to be Winnie's and Winnie's because it's the more traditional narrative is going to stand in for the quote unquote story of record. Winnie mm -hmm. is the traditional story that is as true as she can tell it. So mm -hmm. she's not okay. trying to like, hoodwink the reader right, in right, any way, or, right. or in Ava's case, hoodwink the detective yes, into thinking exactly. she's innocent. And so I realized I needed to bring in Winnie's point of view. But then from there, it was still like, when do I bring it in? Is she going to speak in first person? Is she going to speak in, in, is she going to also tell her story to someone else? You know, like so much went into figuring out the voice of those chapters, how I wanted to position the narrator in Winnie's head. And so the narrator is a little bit distant from Winnie, which gives it a more objective quality, as opposed to if it were right in her head and almost stream of consciousness. So it's, you know, third person, a little bit of distance. And then I figured out I wanted her to come in as close to the midpoint as possible so that we could get that switch soon enough so that the reader didn't read too far in the story. You know, I didn't want the switch to feel gratuitous or too late hmm. because so much of the important themes of the book are related to that switch in point of view. You know, mm -hmm. and so if I save that, if I save that reveal to the very end, for instance, and it kind of is the shocking ending... Right the reader wouldn't be able to engage with those themes because the book's over. So, right. you know, that was one of the reasons I had to kind of finesse that. And then even within Winnie's section, where to actually reveal what was going on. I initially had it in first page of Winnie's section. And my editor was the one who was like, you know, you have some time here. You yeah. can kind of spread it. So now I think it, you know, a couple pages pass, but, and you kind of, kind of give some clues before everything falls into place kind of at the right. end of that section. So all of that took drafts and time and and just kind of trial and error and, and right right thinking about it breaking breaking your brain is what i call it <laughs> yes yes yeah yes. 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 mm -hmm. my editor also i have some i had something in like the first five pages of my novel and she's like oh no you have plenty of time <laughs> yeah you can hint yeah. at it and draw it out it's like no it's such a 
that seems to be the work of the editors, the the restraint that we feel like, yeah, no, I have restraint. to get this. I have to get this into the reader's mind. I also, I was blown away by the shift in perspective and kind of what it reveals. Thank you. Also, the detective was a woman. I yes. am embarrassed to say I did not, <laughs> did not occur to me. I mean, I wasn't exactly thinking hard about the detective, right. but when I read that one line that when she says to Winnie, you should have seen her face. And I was like, oh, shit. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh. I'm guilty, too. I had it totally in my head as a man. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. So you yeah. you subvert our expectations in big ways and little ways. And I just love that without feeling gimmicky or or too smart. Like you're not you're not trying to make us. Feel, you're just like, yes, we're cheering <laughs> for it the whole time. I want to talk a little bit about your path to publication, if mm -hmm. if you can indulge us for a minute, because it was a maybe you already talked about grad school and then you had two other books before this one. And then you kind of, as any Reese Witherspoon book club pick, explode after that. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, part of the gig when she picks your book. Yeah. So in some ways, it looks like a slow burn. I like that you talked about... So at the Northern California Writing Retreat, you afterwards, you were like, was I too down? And I was like, no, I actually <laughs> felt good for the first time ever. Because the truth is, if you've been in it for any amount of time, as all of us there had been, you know, it's a hard road. And so yours was, it's a hard road, but look where I am kind of, I mean, you didn't say that, but that's what we can gather from, from your journey. And so that was such an inspiring talk that you gave us but but you are honest about i've heard you use words like stressful again this is not something that people think people think you get your dream when you get an agent everything will be wonderful or when you get that book deal everything will be wonderful and it's not and also stakes feel a little even higher when yeah. you have those things to get it right and to do it justice to do what you want justice so do you want to talk a little bit about your moments, the stress maybe, or, and also that your path was really not linear? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I'm in an interest, interesting position because it's quite rare for a third book to be a breakout book. I think we're really used mm -hmm. to kind of huge debuts. Mm -hmm. See, I mean, it's that's rare too, but it's a little bit more common to see huge debuts. And then authors often talk about the pressure of having to produce a second book after that. And I really do empathize with that because I think it's mm -hmm. quite difficult. For me, I had a little bit of a different path. So I, I've all, I had two other books. Both were reasonably well received. I mean, they were quiet. They were much more in a much quieter way. They didn't sell anywhere near as many copies, but, but I got paid to write them and it found readers and that already felt like a tremendous gift. I mean, it just, I remember going on tour for my second book and thinking like, if this is my life, I would, mm. you know, I'm so lucky to have this life to be able to get paid to write and to be able to find readers. Um, and that's something I try to remember now because I, as you said, Corinne, you know, my career has kind of taken a strange turn with this third book, obviously found a lot more readers, was so fortunate to make the bestseller list, all of these things that, you know, would never have even been a concern with the first two books. And it is it is stressful in a different way because, because the goalposts or the expectations just get higher. It's not as if you suddenly have everything you want because you just start to want different things and your team, and it's not just you, yeah. it's not just my own personal goals. Right. My team has other goals, you know, like when I got on the bestseller list, 
quite honestly, my first emotion was relief because I knew how hard my team had worked. And I knew that everybody was watching this and they, they did their best to kind of shield me from that. But I knew that it was theirs, you know, sometimes in publishing, your editors and publicists get bonused on whether their authors make the times list. That's a comment. I don't actually know for certain that William Moore does that, but I've heard other people talk about that. And so, you know, the stakes get high and you want to do it for everyone. And so that's kind of the, when I talk about the stress, it's that. I mean, I understand it. I never forget how lucky I am and that it is a privilege to feel that stress. So it's not that I'm complaining, but but that is stress that I didn't even... I had no idea that was a thing when I was publishing my first two books. So that's the first thing. And then the other thing is, you know, I'm trying now that I'm kind of past the huge, you know, one year out from publication, we're going into paperback now. I try to think of it positively. You know, I try to see that stress as a way of staying hungry because I don't want as a writer to get complacent and start like, you know, rehashing the same story over again or writing the same theme. I mean, I think some writers can do that very successfully, but I don't think that I would be one of them. I think I would lose interest. And that to me would feel like I wasn't as engaged in my job as I could be. And so I try to think of that stress as a way of staying hungry, which I think is so important for a writer. Oh, I love that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I like that you said the stress is not what you would have imagined before. Yes. And that's really what it is. And that's the, the sort of the reckoning I'm coming with. It's not a complaint. I do really remind myself that right now, like things are happening for me that I thought might never happen for trying mm-hmm. for 10 years to get here. So I, it is a different level of security and comfort and and satisfaction and, and joy, but it's also just recognizing that there are stresses that you just didn't even know would would be part of it yeah 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 but it must be so weird i guess for the third book i mean you were a writer a pub not just a writer a published author before the reese witherspoon yellow sticker went on your book and you i assume will feel as if you will always be a writer after but in in the middle of it there is this this crazy wild thing that happened but yet I assume like it, it's grounding to just feel like, but, but I was, I'm still doing what I was doing. Yeah. I just had this amazing thing happen in the middle. Maybe, I don't know. I would have yes. to maybe tell myself that. Oh no, it yeah. really is. And both of you were saying careers are not linear. I know that this will likely never happen again. I mean, if you statistically, you're not going to get another book club pick or, you, you know, like yeah. there are many best-selling authors that go on to write quieter books. And, and I try right. to remember that too. You know, I know where I came from. I remember that feeling on my second book tour that this is the life I want. And I can go back to that. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I I, I think it, I, I really do feel lucky that I had that experience and that it's great to be a middleist author. So many people want to want be, a, to. you know, like yes. it's, it's a right. great life. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for this opportunity, but it's not going to last forever. You're only as good as your last book. Mm-hmm. And it's not even quality. Yeah. It's what the what readers want at that moment, oh, you know, and right. so it's not even who I am. I think as a writer, I and I can say this quite confidently, I think I'm going to improve with each book. And that's not going to mm-hmm. have any bearing on my sales. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. Oh, exactly. But it's it's good to just kind of say that out loud. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, one of the things we ask all our authors that we, we can't let you leave without asking you as well, we have a little side interest here in astrology. 
Yes, because as we mentioned, we're the Avas of the world. We're the control freaks. <laughs> yes. So for us, it's like a little bit of a way to kind of understand ourselves and others and let go. So I think I know your sign. You're a Gemini when we stalk people. I we, am. Yes. However, yes. I just want, so I don't know anything about astrology okay. except that Gemini is very chaotic. <laughs> and what I do want to well, say is that I've often, so friends of mine who know astrology, when I say I'm Gemini, they're often floored, but they're often like, what? And what I've gathered is that I'm on the cusp of maybe Taurus. Mm -hmm. And so people are like, well, it could be that you have a lot of Taurus quality. So I don't know what any of that means. I'm just telling you what I've heard. We know what it means. (laughs) We know what it means. And there's definitely, there could be some truth in that. But also, you know, Geminis are not, I'm married to a Gemini. My husband's over there working. It's not chaotic. Some people can present chaotic, but it's also really about duality, right? They Mm -hmm. embrace the duality in themselves. And to other people, that might present as chaotic but Mm. to them it seems very clear and it's just like in this way I'm like really you know this way and in this other area of my life I'm this way and so again to the outside that might appear chaotic but to inside I don't think they feel chaotic at all okay that's good to know Um, yes um (laughs) yes curious expressive quick-witted very smart And that's more for my husband, sorry. Uh, Outgoing, charming, adaptable, which is, yeah, is a funny word because it's not really adaptable, but it's that more like a a chameleon. Yes, it is. But it's more like a chameleon as opposed to a cardinal sign who's always like changing. It's not always changing. It's more like that you can shape shift a little bit be a chameleon but you have to be the person you're not just like mm. you know constantly changing yeah i am a big fan of gemini's so but <laughs> but we to, I, I think it's interesting you and i connected a, a little bit on about yoga and meditation which is still considered kind of woo woo you yeah. know by people despite how, how popular despite, it is. despite all the evidence that yes. it is so good for you yeah yes. oh my god <laughs> right, absolutely right. yes so can you talk a little bit about that before we wrap up here like how you found it you you are an ashtanga practitioner which yes. is so impressive yes. to me i am much more of a dabbler do you want to tell kate she has no idea what ashtanga is so <laughs> a little bit about that yeah i'm a i am a very committed yogi i've practiced near daily for 15 years of my life. Okay. Um, wow. And it's, Ashtanga is a particularly kind of, I mean, people describe it as athletic or acrobatic. And it's, it and it's, I think this is actually my greatest personality tra- or one of my most striking personality traits is that I'm not easily bored. Mm. And Ashtanga, you do the same mm. series every single day. And the idea is that you meet your body where it is. And so when you show up having slept four hours because you had to stay up or, or you're hungover or whatever it is, you do the same practice and you just approach each pose where your body is that day and that has been so instructive for my writing because that is how I that is how I write I show up and I I try to write a thousand words when I'm drafting and regardless of whether I'm hungover or (laughs) sleep deprived or distracted I just what are the thousand words I can produce today you know and so so uh, that's all a kind of long way of saying that Ashtanga is has taught me how to be a writer you know, the kind of writer that I am is stems directly from my Ashtanga practice and also from meditation. I think, Corinne, I, I might have said this in the NorCal Writers Retreat, that I started meditating 
during the period when my first book didn't look like it was going to sell. And so my first novel took eight months to find a home. And in that period, as you can imagine, it was just rejection after rejection, pulling it back for revision, sending it back out, just this kind of churn of like uncertainty. And I knew that if I didn't find some way to detach from that mm -hmm. roller coaster, I could never be a writer because mm -hmm. it would be too painful and also too unhealthy. Yeah. You know, I wasn't sleeping. Right. I could, be, you know, I was just so consumed by this, like, is this going to sell today? Is this Something sell today? you have you know? no control over. No control yes. over. Right. Exactly. No control over. And that's when I started really looking into meditation because I just thought I have to survive if I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so since then, same thing. I've just kind of decided to do it and never stopped. <laughs> um, but and but how, yeah. what was the first step? For people, you know, every I think a lot of us go. We want to meditate. We want to meditate. There are apps. There yeah. are like, like, what did you start with? Where, where is like a baby step? Yeah, I mean, so for me, because I was already a pretty serious yogi, I went to my teacher, oh, right. and that my teacher sense. actually gave me a routine to follow, and that I think is okay. so. If you can find somebody, and it was that actually was instrumental because it was like a you know. You could do it in as quickly as like 10 minutes. And it was like, okay, you know, you do this number of breaths. Like there was a set series that you could kind of fall into as opposed to being like, I'm going to sit and clear my mind for as long as I can. Yeah. That's very, that's kind of right. the, that's the it's, goal, right. not the starting point. Yes. And yeah, so for yeah, me, yeah. it was really helpful to have someone say like, sit down here, you know, breathe 10 breaths this way, eight breaths this way. You know, like I had like a whole routine that I could follow. Yeah. And I remember he also said to me, you never need to learn anything else. Like you could do this for the rest of your life and it will work. That's the practice. Um, yes. And yeah. that's the practice, wow. you know, like you yeah. learn and that whole thing can contain the universe. Yeah. Not to get too woo. Oh, you can it. cut this part. No, oh, no. Uh, no. Not for me. No. And it's please, our favorite part. Yes. And also, yeah. if people are listen used to listening to me, you haven't even scratched <laughs> the surface of where we can go with crazy woo-woo stuff. That is that is fascinating. Thank yeah. you for that. You want to just share a couple things that you're loving right now? Books, TV shows, sure. anything? Yeah. Yeah. I am in the middle of a book right now that I'm so captivated by that I'm going to recommend it anyway, even though I'm not done. It's called The Laughter by Sonora Jaw. Mm -hmm. came out in March or end of February. So it's relatively new. It's a campus tale, which I'm a sucker for yes. campus tales. Mm -hmm. And it's told from the point of view of an aging white male professor in a really liberal university in Seattle. So he's kind of a dinosaur and he gets sort of infatuated with his younger Pakistani colleague, a female professor who's Pakistani. And there's a lot of, I mean, it's really kind of razor sharp, the humor and the kind of liberal white racism. It's very funny and it's yeah. very, very mm. pleasurable to read and a little bit cringy, which I think is the point. The point, so yes. If you're yeah. into that, yeah. Yeah. I think right. this book might be up your alley. Oh, well, if you're okay. into that, have you read Everything's Fine by Cecilia? I haven't yet. Yes. I will, I will. though I've seen, I just got a, I just read the Times review today, yeah. which was, you know, five stars. Really, yeah. really, the critic Incredible. really loved it. And so it's on my list. It sure. is all of those things. And you have to understand that going into it, right? You're not, this is right. not, you're not reading something A, aspirational, B, instructive, right? This is not, <laughs> it is, it is intended to make you uncomfortable in good ways, in ways yeah. that make you think. And, and also it's so 
funny and sexy and propulsive and all of the other things too. So I, that, is, that is a great recommendation. I will definitely take yes. you up on that. Well, anything else? Our interviews out. Yeah. With her too. I mean, in the same vein, I love Fleischman is in trouble. The TV, the TV show. Yes. I love the book. I love yes. the TV show. Mm-hmm. I just started watching beef, which I know. Oh, so you, good. I, I believe what your podcast has yes. addressed that. And I know yeah. there is controversy around the actors yes. and I have, and I'm actively thinking about that as well, but yes. I, I've seen the first two episodes and it's really captivating. The, the tone of it is yeah. so interesting. Yes, my partner is. and I were talking about this last night. Like there's this kind of, I'm not an expert in film or anything, but there's like an off kilter feel to the camera, like the colors, the saturation of the colors feels a little bit like hyper real, you know, yes. like it's not quite straight yeah. on realism. I don't oh, know. Wait I, till I, I, the bit. Oh yeah. You're catching on to something that's yeah. really will, Towards will continue end. to be developed. Okay. I think after episode four, I think it is where she goes, they go to Vegas that one is like a real turning point for me. I was like, holy shit, what am I watching? And then by the yeah. end, oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm intrigued. So I'm definitely okay, sticking good. with it. Good, good, good. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you good. so much. Counterfeit is out in paperback now. If you haven't already read it, I love this book. I read it when it first came out and then I reread it for, because I read so much. I I'll, I can basically just remember, I loved it. That was it. And then <laughs> yes. I reread it Details and I was are... very envious in a good way i was like how did she do this it's so good oh thank you that is the ultimate compliment from a writer is when they ask you oh how how did you do this yes absolutely Mm -hmm. so thanks again for coming oh thank you for your questions they were just so thoughtful and i so appreciate the care with which you read my book it's Uh, really a privilege well you made it (laughs) so (laughs)